This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. President Trump is extending the deadline originally set for March 1st to increase tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese imports. The president tweeted on Sunday that there had been, quote, substantial progress, end quote, during trade talks between the United States and Chinese officials meeting in Washington on issues like intellectual property, agriculture, and technology transfer. He added that if negotiations continue to be productive, there could be a summit between him and Chinese President Xi Jinping by the end of March at his Mar-a-Lago Golf Club in Florida. With more on the latest, we're joined here in studio by Minwan Zhao, who's an associate professor of management here at the Wharton School, and also joining us on the phone Matt Gold, who's an adjunct law professor at Fordham University and a former deputy assistant U.S. trade representative for North America. Meanwhile, great to see you again. Glad to be here. Thank you, Matt. Great to have you with us today. Great to be here. Thank you. So, Matt, I, I guess from the from the rhetoric that has been put out over the last forty eight to seventy two hours, uh, where do you think the these negotiations actually stand right now? Well, first to be clear. What's going on inside the negotiations at the table is somewhat somewhat of a black box uh, for every outside observer right. here in the United States. Um, you know that that the actual information is is uh, often classified confidential, and if it's not classified, it's still considered sensitive. So, so no one actually knows. We're all divining this from limited uh, publicly available data points. Um, we had a lot more in terms of publicly available data points with the NAFTA renegotiation. Um, but I, a couple of observations that I would make. First of all, um, the fact that President Trump says there's substantial progress absolutely does not mean there's been substantial progress. Um, it means a few things at a minimum. Uh, one is that President Trump absolutely does not want uh, to increase the tariffs on the $200 billion, uh, from t- of Chinese goods um, from 10 percent to 25 percent, which is what this deadline uh, is for on March 1st. He just doesn't want to do it because of the negative impact it'll have on markets, um, stock markets, which um, financial markets, which are the the only real objective indicator of his, of his presidency that that has been positive uh, since he entered office, and he, and uh, he doesn't want those to react negatively as they will if he increases those tariffs. Um, it tells us that he wants to close the deal at Mar-a-Lago further to advertise Mar-a-Lago as a resort, um, further to, to make the deal his. Um, and uh, it doesn't really tell us whether he has a basis to do so. When you have a deadline like the March 1st deadline where you say, OK, uh, we're going to elevate these retaliation tariffs on China from 10 percent to 25 percent on March 1st, if you don't extend the deadline unless you do have substantial progress towards your objectives. Uh, behind the scenes. Um, but in the case of President Trump, um, you know, he has a personal history of doing uh, lots of things that other presidents haven't done. And one of them is to give ultimatums and um, to other leaders not to cross certain lines. When they cross those lines, he just simply draws another line. And, and uh, this could be what's going on. Uh, we, we, we have to have progress by January 1st, but we didn't, so we extended it to March 1st. Well, we have to have progress by March 1st. If we don't, maybe he extends it anyway. And the, the last thing I would just observe is that there's no new date. Um, right. The rumor is they're going to extend uh, the deadline, but there's, there's no new date. This is another indicator that he just he, he doesn't want to impose those tariffs um, because of their impact on the market. 
So um, uh, we don't know if he really has a basis uh, for this extension or not. So, Minwan, the, the, the impact that the tariffs have had in, in China, mm-hmm. from what you know, what you have uh, talked with, with uh, friends over there, what has been really the impact of the tariffs in general and the potential of taking it from 10 percent to 25 percent obviously is a significant multiplier of whatever problems have already occurred? Well, I would say 10 percent is tough. 25% will be devastating. And, uh, you know, realistically, um, people don't expect the 25% to happen because it will be devastating for both parties. Right. Um, the 10% is very damaging for two reasons. One is a direct tariff. It makes, you know, most of the exporters in China have razor thin profit. Right? 2% will be the norm. So 10% tariff on this is very hard to swallow. The second reason is uncertainty. You know, with any possible uncertainty on the horizon, should I make investment into my next equipment or not? Probably not. So private sector investment was way down with the external environment and uncertainty in the external environment. So how important do you think it is for China to to find a deal that is suitable for both sides at this point? Well, I think it's important for both sides. And from China's perspective, you know, it's important not only because of trade. I think the negotiation is way beyond the scope of the trade, right? right. It's about development models. You know, you have the Washington consensus and the Beijing, um, well, they no longer call it a consensus, but um, how to pursue the next stage of development given the changing external environment. And I think that's a much bigger picture. Uh, you had, you know, made in China 2025, you had all the five-year models. Uh, the state-led development model was basically the default. Uh, but would the negotiation change that? What kind of restrictions would be put in place on right. development models? So I think the whole scope is much uh, larger. Than, than trade itself. Well, Matt, in terms of, of the issues that have kind of been talked about and, and put out in the media uh, that the U.S. really wants to address, I, I don't think there's much doubt that the areas of intellectual property and technology transfer are, are a, a significant concern for the United States and for U.S. companies that want to, to do business in China. Oh, there's no question about it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, when China uh, was admitted to the World Trade Organization, um, 163 countries took on obligations to China to let uh, Chinese goods and services into our markets uh, on favorable terms, uh, and China took on the same obligations to us. Uh, China has programs, first of all, they, they steal intellectual property rights outright, uh, piracy, but they also um, require U.S. companies to enter into joint ventures with Chinese companies to get into their market, through which they also steal IP, uh, they force technology transfers, um, as a price of doing business in China. And all of these are violations of different types of uh, WTO obligations that China took on to the United States um, more than 15 years ago, 17, 18 years ago, when it joined the World Trade Organization. And um, they're, they're uh, specifically violations of trade obligations that China has to the United States. But more broadly, they're restrictions on the ability of American firms to bring American goods and American services into the Chinese market. Uh, and they hurt us in a lot of different ways, both in terms of cutting down our exports of goods and services in China and in terms of stealing um, our know-how, our patents, our copyrights, our intellectual property that we spend large amounts of money developing and which we own and which we have a right, uh, right to, to have the ownership rights to. 
Meanwhile? So I want to add two points. I agree. Uh, for a long while, the IP theft has been rampant. There's some change uh, in, in the past decade or so. Um, the private sector, well, when I was in China, uh, there's just no concept of IP, right? I see something good, I want to do it too. Right. Um, so there's a long education and a legislation um, process to get the IP concept even into people's mind. Um, and so if you look at that part of the world, uh, IP enforcement has strengthened tremendously with the specialized IP court, with the easy access to legal enforcement. So for those kind of regular theft or um, or copyright issues you, you're facing in China, uh, multinational companies have a lot easier access to the court system and get things done. But on the other hand, uh, something else is going on, the state-led learning, the indigenous innovation push, right? right. So that blurs the boundary, not, you know, in, in that realm, the boundary is not clear about you know, what is theft and what is just state-led investment into learning everything you have to learn. And uh, I think the the, for, the so-called forced technology transfer got into that realm because the state came out to say, if you want to do business here, we need to learn what this technology is, is about. Right. And if you think about 20 years ago, Nobody will even tell the multinational companies, by the way, this is a transaction and we're going to learn about your technology. They just take it and yeah. start producing. Yeah. So, you know, the fact that there's more negotiation uh, means the concept of IP is a lot is uh, established now. But the state is in such a dominant position. Uh, you can say they can coerce companies into the seemingly mutual agreement of technology transfer. So I think the... Um, from today's perspective, the threat is not the so-called IP, but really in the state-dominated development model in which, uh, you know, the dominant voice the state has in any path private sector wants to take, um, give them all the, you know, uh, discretion on how to pursue the, the um either IP and the whole business model for multinationals. Matt, your reaction to that? Well, I, I definitely agree with Minwan about the fact that it requires a cultural shift uh, in the Chinese population and in the Chinese government uh, to have clearer understanding of and respect for intellectual property rights. You know, as a communist country, the, the, the concept of property itself uh, didn't exist for a long time. I mean, China spent decades educating people on the idea that there was no such thing as property. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, the, the culture has gotten to the point now where it understands property, but understanding intellectual property is, is yet another step beyond that. Now, most people do now finally understand intellectual property as well, but uh, it does require a cultural shift, and, and China is in the midst of that shift. But there, in the last 10 years, there's there has definitely been a change, and I agree with Minwan about this as, as well. It, you know, there was a time that not only was that cultural shift taking place, but also the government was backing off in its dominance uh, on the economy. And, of course, that second piece uh, has reversed in the last 10 years, and, and the Chinese government is, is reasserting its dominance, um, which uh, is problematic in the trade area for a lot of different reasons. But at the end of the day... Um, you know, one positive about the government's dominance is that if the government agrees 
um, to uh, respect U.S. intellectual property, and if the government decides it's going to enforce that respect, uh, it can bring about that enforcement um, not, not very, very fast, but it can bring about that enforcement and a process towards that enforcement um, in, in a reasonable time frame. Right. Uh, and, and I just want to add that if you read mass media, uh, there are black and white words like copying and a theft. But in reality, the devil is really in the details. Even in the United States, so I study intellectual property rights, um, companies are suing each other all the time. Uh, and uh, in, in pharma, in many of the high tech industries, Companies learn about what your competitors are doing through various channels. They want to reverse engineer what they're doing, and they try to come up ways to um, produce something that is attractive enough, but on the border of you know avoiding intellectual property rights right. uh, disputes. So, and the lawyers play a big role in that. So, um, China thinks they're on the safe ground. You know, if you talk with uh, enterprises in China, they say, "Look." We're investing a lot in R and D. We're we're observing what the Western is doing, but we are doing something different. Um, but you know, from the Western media, of course, it was anything similar is direct copying. Uh, I think you know, understanding the dynamic process of R and D. You know, the the whole R and D process, not only internationally but also in domestic economy, is about observing each other, making further investment, and do something better. Um, I have. I have no denying that China is doing a lot of copying, uh, but you know, understanding the nuance can be helpful on, for both sides. But how important is the agriculture piece to this for China? Because mm-hmm. we've heard obviously stories and uh, people talk about how soybean is a very important component right. in, in in China right now, and mm-hmm. and so much of it is shipped from the United States. But when you think about agriculture as a whole, I would imagine there are elements outside of soybean that that end up playing a role in terms of the negotiations about how much would be going from the U.S. I think overall agriculture is the area China is mostly ready to uh, to agree to whatever term there is to buy. You know, the agreeing to buy more soybean is the first thing they will check off the box. Right. Um, because China, first of all, China need it, and the U.S. is the, the cheapest and the highest quality provider of the product. There is some concern in China about so-called economic dependence, economic security. You know, we're, we're so dependent on agricultural products from the U.S. What if it became a credible threat? But it's it's mostly muted because, as you can see, in the past year, you know, there are always Brazilian soybeans we can get sure. from. Yeah. So yeah. Um, the idea is that if you look at a comparative advantage. U.S. does have the comparative advantage in many of the agricultural products. So, you know, why not take advantage of that? Matt, how important is it from the U.S. side? Um, In terms of um, politics, well, in terms of Trump pretending he succeeded, very important in terms of actual success, in no way uh, significant. Um, A trade negotiation is a negotiation between two governments. And the subject matter of what they're negotiating is, is their own laws, their own statutes, their own regulations, their own rules, which ultimately affect the other countries' businesses from getting access to their markets. So what we're talking about in this trade negotiation is Chinese laws that impact um, U.S. firms' ability to get U.S. goods and services as the Chinese market uh, and vice versa in theory. <laughs> um, U.S. government laws that affect Chinese goods and services coming into our market. A private sale, 
someone buying or selling commodities is, first of all, not between the government. It would be a private party on the U.S. side, and it would be a state, maybe a state-owned enterprise, an enterprise on the government side, but it's, it's, it's acting as a private party in that context. So it wouldn't be between the governments. It would be between par- private parties. Right. It also wouldn't be about government laws or regulations. It would be a purchase and sale of a commodity, and it also wouldn't involve any concessions on either side because it would take place more or less at world prices at world market prices. So it's, it's not a concession from either side. It's not between the governments, and it doesn't relate uh, to anyone's trade barriers. So at the end of the day, that kind of sale is in no way part of this negotiation. The fact that, we're th- that the, you know, President Trump is talking about it, the fact that he's talking about it now in the context of these negotiations, the fact that he's going to be, he, he might very well be talking about it when there's a, a final deal, um, and it'll, the fact that his administration might try to list those kinds of sales uh, as part of the deal is w- the major element that makes Americans worry that Trump is going to get nothing uh, and is going to agree to a non-agreement where he, he gets either very little or, or, well, probably not nothing, but very little of what he went in uh, to try to get out of the Chinese and ultimately much less than would have justified all the self-inflicted pain of this trade war. Because, you know, if he feels, if Trump feels a compelling need to sort of throw in these soybean purchases and other agricultural commodity purchases on the list of what he achieved, what it means is he didn't achieve uh, anywhere near enough with respect to what these talks were actually about. I totally agree with that. And the reason why I say uh, this is the easiest box to check is it does not touch on any of the development model, legal framework, or any of the... um, the things that the, the trade deal is about. And the, the reason the negotiation is so important is, you know, a lot of people believe this will reshape the landscape between the two countries, not only between the two countries. So one thing you notice this time is nobody is mentioning WTO, right? right? So it's all between the U.S. and, and the China. And if this takes hold, we're talking about sidelining WTO, rendering it irrelevant. And we're talking about a new international order. Um, and so my private suspicion about the extension of the deadline is a lot of other things are going on around the world. You know, Venezuela is uh, a country that all parties, Russia, China, U.S., are interested in. The meeting in Vietnam, the meeting yep. with North Korea, and so many sensitive issues are going on, and all these issues involve the interest of U.S., China, and the major powers. So um, this trade deal is really a, you know, a, a signal that many people are observing. But Matt, you had, had talked about it in prior shows that we had you on about the WTO and, and uh, this administration going beyond the boundaries in certain areas. Uh, where WTO, WTO rules would probably be in place. So I guess the the, the consideration off of what Min Wan said is, is the WTO in the scope of, of these two countries, is it losing a little bit of its impact? Huh. Well, yeah, there's a lot on that subject. Um, first of all, the Trump administration has dramatically, dramatically undermined um, the credibility of the WTO's agreements and of its enforcement process. Um, by ignoring the United States' own obligations under the process, you know, the way in which the United States went about retaliating against China. It started out being about WTO rules. China 
Um, you know, the objective indicator of the fact that China's theft of intellectual property rights or U.S. intellectual property rights is, is wrong, the objective indicator of that is that it violates certain specific WTO obligations that China has to the United States in certain WTO agreements. So it started out being all about the WTO obligations. Then, you know, President Trump, uh, for a myriad of, of bad reasons, instead of retaliating against China through the WTO dispute resolution process, he retaliated against China outside that process. So rather than uh, this whole matter sort of enforcing WTO rules, it ended up dramatically undermining WTO rules because he took his reaction outside of the WTO process. Then China's retaliation to our retaliation was outside the WTO process. And then the last uh, piece of the puzzle that's undermining the WTO and uh, uh, is, is a discussion going on right now about what is the enforcement mechanism going to be um, for any agreement that the United States and China achieves. Again, the enforcement mechanism should be the WTO dispute resolution process because, again, these are WTO rules China was violating and, in theory, would be coming into compliance with. Um, but, there's, you know, the U.S. Trade Representative is insisting on a separate enforcement mechanism, which would look more like the enforcement mechanism you get in a bilateral free trade agreement, um, probably, where rather than a WTO uh, panel deciding whether China complied or didn't comply, there'd be a separate kind of panel that would be set up under a separate U.S.-China bilateral agreement that would decide whether China did or did not comply. Um, and, you know, that's really moving the U.S.-China relationship outside the WTO. Now, we do absolutely need an enforcement mechanism that works, and the, and the WTO's enforcement mechanism has problems. Um, but there's a great effort to reform the WTO's enforcement mechanism right now, and the United States is not part of it because the United States – um, has uh, has violated so many WTO rules with regard to this whole China trade war and with regard separately to the steel and aluminum tariffs on steel and aluminum coming from many countries to the United States that, that we were basically kicked out of those discussions. So not specifically because of the U.S.-China conflict, but because of broader policies by the Trump administration, um, the United States is not participating in reforming the WTO dispute process. We're looking for a separate process for the U.S.-China arrangement, and, and all of that further and further undermines um, the WTO and its agreements and its dispute resolution process. But would it be would it be correct to say that, as we have seen this play out, Matt, that that it feels like President Trump believes that the the potential of raising tariffs is kind of that that hammer that he believes he can use to try and 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 correct some of, of the issues he sees as problems between the United States and China? Well, he would have had the opportunity to impose the exact same tariffs if he had gone through the WTO dispute resolution process. Right. He just would have had to have proven his case before a, a WTO panel and then proven it again before the WTO appellate body before getting permission. Right. And it would have taken taken three or four years. Right. Um, but, you know, uh, American presidents could have done that before, and it, it could have been, you know, it, we didn't initiate that process before because we had the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's a whole separate mechanism to put pressure on China. And then Trump came into office and threw out, pulled the United States out of the TPP, and then we were left with nothing. So, you know, there's a lot going on here, but the long and the short of it is tariffs are a good mechanism, but but that doesn't answer the question as to why he, he you know, impatience and immaturity is the answer to the question and lack of impulse control are answers to the question as to why he had to do it immediately in his own personal politics, why he had to impose those tariffs immediately rather than um, going through the proper process for it. Right. I, I think... Um I wrote uh, a long time ago about TPP. Um, 
it's one thing to write down the terms and the conditions. It's another thing to think about enforcement. And I think in this regard, the terms that will be reached in this trade agreement has the same problem of the WTO enforcement. Um, China has the state power, and they will use the power to maximize China's growth prospect. So if unless there's significant framework change in terms of how the legal framework will take root in China and how you know the, the legal system will be right. uh, will be enforced, what's the use? You know, how will the U.S. monitor? The enforcement of those rules, right. you know, yeah. how are you are you going to check every single factory? Are you going <laughs> to be, you know, the default police station in China? I don't think so. So, uh, one reason why WTO has been going on for or had been going on for uh, decades is the countries see a stake in getting the collaboration going, right? right? You know, if I violate too much, this is, we see the collective good in having an international trade platform, and I don't want to sabotage the platform by deviating too far. I think that's a more powerful tool than, you know, having the the tariffs imposed. Great having you both back with us. Thank you, Mimwan. Appreciate it. Thank Matt, you. great to have you back with us. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Meanwhile, yeah. Zhao from here at the Wharton School, Matt Gold uh, at uh, Fordham University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.